welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Show. Thanks for joining us to lead, learn, and laugh. Learn market knowledge and best practices to lead your company's success. And hey, that's whatever type of company you work with and laugh. I think we have to have some fun along the way. Well, I'm Michael Bull, your host to the world of commercial real estate. Thanks for joining us. Remember, if you have any commercial real estate related questions or if you have comments about the show, we do appreciate hearing from you. Our phone number is 888-612-SHOW. Our email is info at com. You can also connect with us through your favorite social media. You can find them all at the show website, commercialrealestateshow.com. Well, today we're going to focus on bank and servicer strategies. You know, working through the CMBS loans and the health of the banking industry is key to the economic recovery and to the commercial real estate recovery. So let's get to our first guest. My first guest is Tom Fink, Senior Vice President with TREP. TREP is the leading provider of CMBS and commercial mortgage information, analytics, technology for the global securities and investment management industries. Tom, welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Show. Michael, thank you. It's a pleasure to be back. Well, we appreciate you uh, taking some time and calling us from New York today. So it's a great day there? It's a beautiful day. <laughs> That's good. Well, Tom, let's get right into it. You know, What is the current status of loans in the CMBS world? Are default rates improving? Well, I think, Michael, we're in a steady state. I think the servicers and special servicers are liquidating loans at about a pace equal to keep the balance of loans in that category of delinquent loans pretty stable. We've seen a little bit of a tick down. The actual delinquency rate itself jumps around because loans are paying down. But I think we're in a steady state right now. I wouldn't call it you know, greatly improving. But it's a steady state. It's not getting worse, that's for sure. <laughs> well, that's good. Well, how, how's the current default rate compared to, say, the last several years? Well, I think you have to break it down by property type. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've seen quite a bit of improvement in the multifamily and hotel space. Uh, multifamily is even stronger if you can exclude a couple of the big New York City loans that are bad. Uh, but office and retail have been deteriorating. So, you know, I think that's, you know, reflective of the overall economy of, um, you know, white collar jobs are not as strong as they were, you know, at the height of the uh, real estate market. Wow. So office and retail still declining. Huh? Yep. We've seen the delinquency rate and the balance of, of loans and trouble go up. Okay. Well, how many loans and uh, what are the volume of loans that are set mature in 2012? I mean, the loans with five-year calls that were uh, originated in 2007 were probably at the height of the market. Uh, so what right. do you see coming this year? Well, we, you know, we, we, we looked at the numbers at the beginning of the year, and, and we showed about $60 billion of loans that are scheduled to pay off in 2012. Now, of that $60 billion, $18 billion is already delinquent and in default. So those are troubled loans that are really more workout situations than anything else. Of the balance is about $42 billion. That's in about 1,200 different loans. Um, and that excludes the ones that are delinquent. So those are sort of like the maturing loans that are scheduled to come due this year. It's about $42 billion. Wow. And of these loans maturing in 2012, how many are potentially worth less than the loan amount? I'd say about half. Half. Yeah, I'd say, you know, what What I actually did when I looked at the numbers, I'd, since it's hard to tell what a building's worth until you actually go in and kick the tires on it. What we a lot of lenders are using these days is the concept of debt yield. So what they do is they take the NOI or net cash flow on the property and divide it by the borrower's loan balance. And that number to, in today's market for most property types has to be 10% or higher. And that's the debt yield number. And almost every lender I'm talking to 
that's really the number that they're focusing on today. And LTV is still relevant, and LTV can act as a governor, but it's that debt yield number that a lot of lenders are focusing on. And using that as the cutoff, about half the loans can ref- should be able to find refinancing in today's market. Okay, so you got about $30 billion that are upside down, and that's just in CMBS? Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, it's hard. I mean, the bank loan numbers are starting to come down a little bit, but we still think that, you know, in the bank commercial real estate portfolio, which, you know, is about $1.3 trillion, you know, there's probably at least another $65 billion of upside-down loans in that market. Okay. And these loans that uh, are worth less than the property value, how far do you think they're off? Any idea there? I mean, I think it ranges everywhere from, you know, a small amount, you know, 10, 15% where you could probably find equity to situations where the loan's worth, you know, maybe 20% of the outstanding loan balance. I mean, we've seen some massive, you know, restructurings and losses on some properties in the CMBS world. Um, You know, basically properties that have outlived their, their usefulness. The markets have changed. People have moved away. You've got retail properties you know, that should be on deadmalls.com, um, you know, and they're yeah. going to they're gonna get written down, you know, 50, 60, 70 percent. Yeah. Well, Tom, how many loans are getting modified and extended lately? Uh, you know, what we show is that in the last two years, about 6 percent of the outstanding loans have been modified. So that's about $33 billion worth. Wow. And are servicers more aggressive now than they've been in the last several years? Do you expect more foreclosures this year? Do they think it's okay to to now take a property back and and, uh, dispose of it? I think you're going to see an increase. I think you're going to see resolutions continue at a pace. And I I use the word resolutions because there's really two, two basic strategies, three basic strategies a servicer has. One is get some outside capital come in, modify the loan, recapitalize the deal, keep it in place. And that's, you know, we've done $33 billion in that. That's not such a bad deal. The second one is to sell the loan note. And I don't have uh, the loan note sales statistics handy, but that's strategy number one. And strategy number two is to go through the foreclosure, take control of the property. And from a trust perspective, that is from a CMBS bondholder perspective, sometimes the loan sale, the note sale is the easiest and fastest resolution because what hurts the trust is when these things drag on forever. I mean, you've, I'm sure, had borrowers or worked on properties that have been in, you know, distress for a long time, and you know the carrying costs just eat up whatever value is left. Right. And uh, if they sell the note, they don't have to get involved right. in that. So, so, and what we're seeing then, your, your question really was, is what are we seeing this year? I think we're going to continue to see resolutions somewhere between 2 and $3 billion a month. Now, that's just for anybody who's worried about running out of opportunities, that means there's about a three-year supply left. <laughs> okay. So plenty of work to do still. Yeah. Well, Tom, what are the sources for refinancing debt this year? Is CBS a part of the solution, and what are, what are the other sources for uh, debt and equity? Well, let me, let me just go to, I think, first of all, I think there's a lot of capital sources out there. So that's the first thing. There are plenty of people that we talk to that say, yes, I want to put money to work in real estate. CMBS will be a factor because even though, you know, it's not going to be a $200 billion market like it was in 06 and 07, the fact of the matter is we really expect CMBS to do between 35 and $40 billion of financing this year. I mean, we've got $6 billion on the slate for March in terms of conduit deals, which is what you're... I think a lot of your listeners really want to hear because, you know, the conduit market is the B property and the secondary and tertiary markets. And that was sort of bread and butter CMBS. 
and that's going to be bread and butter CMBS going forward. The reason I say that, portfolio lenders, the insurance company lenders, are still extremely active. Now, the big guys, the MetLife's, the teachers, the Prudentials, and if I miss the client, I apologize, um, those are focused on you know the top markets, maybe the top 10, top 25 markets, the big properties. Balance sheet lenders, loan, loan um, insurance companies that are smaller than those guys are very active as well, and they will tend to be uh, lend to the better properties in some of those secondary markets, but they generally have themes about what kind of properties they like. It may be grocery anchored retail, maybe multi-use industrial. So I would encourage you know the property owners in particular to cultivate their local insurance companies and find out who's you know who handles origination for a local life insurance company because there's about 70 of them that are active in the country and the guys that can't compete with the the big guys in the big markets are lending in the smaller markets but they're very specific and particular about their property types in the multifamily space i mean freddie and fannie are the story i mean they're still waving the collateral in Right. And Tom, you guys at TREP are, are tracking these CMBS loans all over the country and all over North America. I'd like to see if you have some tips for servicers and, and borrowers. So if you have a, a, an opportunity here to talk to servicers and give them some tips, uh, what would you uh, leave with them? I, you know, I think the big thing is to get a dialogue open, and I know it's frustrating to start the process. Um, but, you know, the truth is, is that, you know, the, the big servicers, the, you know, the Midlands, the PNCs, the key banks, um, you know, Wells Fargo, you know, they are processing a lot of loans and they're trying to get a lot of, a lot of things moved through the pipeline. I think, you know, borrowers have to be realistic. If they're not going to be able, they've got a property that's in trouble and they can't bring capital to the table to help solve that, then, you know, they're not going to control the outcome. They're going to do what the servicer plans for the interest of the trust. Right. It's show me the money, right? <laughs> it, you know, it's always been that way in right. real estate. I mean, I, I don't, you know, a lot of borrowers, a lot of property owners have been through more than one real estate cycle. I mean, we were lucky this last time that the, the upside of the real estate cycle really lasted for, what, 15 years from, you know, let's call it 1992 to 2007. Right. That's almost unprecedented in terms of a real estate cycle. It is. Tom Fink, thanks for your time today, and thanks for joining us. Michael, as always, it's a pleasure. Appreciate it. Talk to you soon. If you'd like more information from TREP, their website and contact information is available for you at commercialrealestateshow.com. After a quick break, we'll get the latest on the U.S. banking industry with FIG Partners. I'm Michael Bull, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty. When your business requires proven performance, visit bullrealty.com and Arnold Golden Gregory, a law firm that makes a difference. Visit agg.com. And by France Media, providing exposure to the world of commercial real estate. Visit francemediainc.com. And by Resnick Group, a top 20 national accounting firm focused on real estate. Visit resnickgroup.com. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. If you'd like to know the absolute latest on any commercial real estate-related subjects, check out our show podcast. We just completed market update shows on every major sector and produced a show on Twitter for Business. 
You can hear these shows while they're still available on iTunes and on the show website, commercialrealestateshow.com. Well, today we're covering bank and server search strategies. My next guest is Christopher Marinek, Managing Principal and Director of Research with FIG Partners. FIG Partners is an employee-owned broker-dealer specializing in financial institutions. Their expertise includes independent research on public bank stocks and the industry at large, raising new capital, and providing strategic advice for banks nationwide. Chris Marinak, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Michael. It's great to be here. Well, thank you for coming back. Uh, we really enjoyed the uh, last time you were on the show and getting a real good picture of what's going on in the banking world. And the banks are obviously an important part of the economic and, and real estate recovery. How did U.S. banks perform in t- 2011? Surprisingly, if you look at FDIC bank charters, over 90% of them, particularly the banks that are larger than $5 billion in assets, made money or profitable on a pre-tax basis in 2011. If you cut the data a little bit wider and look at community banks that are between 500 and a billion or 250 to, to 500, those smaller institutions still made money. Approximately 85 to, to 88% of those were profitable in 2011. So not everybody, but certainly a better number. If we dial the clock back two years, only about 60 to 65% of the industry was profitable back in the, at the end of uh, 2008 and early 2009. So as a cigarette commercial goes, we like to say we, we, we've come a long way, baby. <laughs> okay. So the community banks are doing better now, then? That is correct. Still, still struggling a little bit on credit quality to get through those, but they are, um, I think, stabilizing in large proportion and beginning to turn and look upward, which is a, you know, a big change from the past. That's great. So what is the outlook for banks for this year, and how many banks are on the trouble list? Are we going to have more bank fail- failures this year? Sure. If, if you look at um, the capital ratios as the current trigger of what causes a bank to fail, it's not so much the Texas ratio or any given statistic. It has more to do with capital. Mm-hmm. Um, there are 115 banks nationwide who have less than 4% Tier 1 leverage. Mm-hmm. And then you cut that further, there are 66 that have less than 3 and about 20 who have less than two. The banks that have less than two are almost certain to fail. In fact, we actually have seen a couple of those already fail. <clears throat> My sense is that you're probably going to see somewhere between 50 and 60 banks fail in 2012. Remember that we are in an election year, and as such, I think that the FDIC wants the industry to look a certain way, and we're not going to see as many failures as we otherwise would. Now, as time progresses, some institutions that are kind of on that bubble less than 5% capital, but more than 4 probably start to cross over into 3 and 2% capital because they struggle and cannot get ahead of themselves on the capital front. So we will see more banks head, enter into the troubled list. But the reality is these are all small institutions. There are very, very few companies that are you know, in the $700, $800 billion range. These are mostly $50, $60, $150 million institutions. They're small. They're not a threat to anything, whether it's locally here in the southeast or anywhere part of the country. Um, we had a, a dinner with the FDIC regional director in the West who commented that he felt that there would be less than 10 institutions who failed in all the Western states, and that's in 2012. Well, that would be good news. <laughs> Correct. Well, how much bad debt and OREO do the banks have right now, and how does that compare to, say, the last several years? Well, uh, the number's still high. Um, you know, Looking at the data from the FDIC for 1231, you're going to find that, particularly across the industry, that you know, your, your median level of problem assets are still 5 to 6% of total loans in Oreo. Historically, it's very high. Banks like to be around the 2% range or even less than 2%. We have an awful lot of institutions who have a high amount of problems, uh, whether you look at Texas ratio as one input, or if you simply look, as I like to do, at what's the total number of problem assets as a percentage of loans plus ORE. And that number, again, is around 5% on medium. What we're finding is that it's stable. It is not getting worse. It may not get, get necessarily better in the near term. There's kind of a churning effect going on 
both of Oreo as well as just problem assets, it's not getting any worse. And I think that's actually real important because most banks have a fair amount of cash flow that they make every quarter. That cash flow allows them to burn through these problems. And as time passes, the calendar turns, the problems slowly start to come down. That's kind of what we are forecasting for this year. Nothing fantastic in terms of improving dramatically, but more of a modest improvement. Stabilization continue to be reinforced each quarter and then moving forward. Now, if we have a shift in valuation, economic activity picks up, values pick up, then you could see a faster recovery. I don't necessarily expect that, but our forecast is that things do not get any worse, which I think is real important because we have a lot of prognosticators who feel like the, the gloom and doom is still out there and that there's you know going to be another you know six years of bad, bad news from the uh, uh, banking industry, which I disagree with. I think we're actually much more stable and much stronger than people give us credit for. Yeah, well, that's good. You know, it seems like the uh, fundamentals are improving slightly for commercial real estate. Uh, there's been some some good numbers coming out of s- some of the property types. What types of loans and uh, foreclosed properties are causing the most issues for banks right now? It's still raw land. Mm-hmm. Raw land is still the biggest bugaboo for most banks, mm-hmm. and that's because, as all of us know here, the value of land, it continues to be hard to peg, <clears throat> particularly if you do not have a near-term use for it. And the further out you get in a major a major metro area, whether it's in North Georgia, the outskirts of North Carolina, or in, in you know the outskirts of Las Vegas, any parts of those markets around the country are difficult to value unless you have an immediate use for it with an immediate you know cash flow uh, in your site. So therefore, land has the biggest discount. I think that certain properties are getting hot. Um, we're seeing hotels acting stronger. We are certainly seeing multifamily very strong, as I think a lot of us know here. Um, and we also think that there is increased interest in retail when there is cash flow and reasonable uh, leases that are in place. Now, retail is a, is a you know, major category. You have to really get underneath the covers to understand what type of retail you have and what type you don't have. But uh, we're seeing a lot more investor interest in retail properties because there is some cash flow involved, which allows people to review it. And, of course, low interest rates are driving this to some extent because people's perception of risk is a lot different today with the 10-year Treasury around 2% than it would have been a year or two years ago when the Treasury was much higher. So your relative trade-off and therefore your cap rate is starting to improve because of that. Yeah, I tell you, land is really on sale right now, and uh, there's going to be some uh, fortunes made, I, I believe, or in- increased <laughs> by folks buying land at these uh, low prices. Well, Chris, the loans with five-year calls that originated in 2007 when commercial real estate was at the height of the market are maturing this year. Uh, do banks expect more uh, REO to increase this year? Are they going to have more problems? You know, it depends who you talk to. If you talk yeah. to the bank CEO, he or she is tends to be a lot, way more optimistic than I think uh, you know their chief credit officers are. Mm-hmm. Um, I continue to expect that Oreo is going to continue to be a, a big part of bank balance sheets. It's actually going to, if if anything, it's going to increase. While the non-performing assets may, may may decline and the problem loans may decline, the actual Oreo, the physical foreclosed properties, continue to increase. You know, there's a backlog in every state, even in Georgia, where it's non-judicial, where you have just the the legal process is slow to actually get the approval to to seize the property, then go ahead and sell it. So that is all moving through the pipeline, and it's just taking time. Incredibly slow in Florida, incredibly slow in New York, Pennsylvania, other markets where you know the legal system just is, is way behind and has to catch up. I think that's going to take till 2014 to really clear it, to clear itself up. Now, that, that does not mean that things are terrible. It just means that there's a process that has to go through. So statistically, I think you're going to see Oreo rising this year. And the other thing we watch is the expense of Oreo, the kind of maintenance expense, the insurance expense that has to be go into banks, earnings statements to account for getting rid of this prop, uh, property. We saw spikes in that the last two quarters, and I suspect that if it comes down this first half of the year, it's only seasonal, that in general we'll still see some pretty high charges 
for Oreo just because it's part of the nature of getting rid of the problems. Yeah, and those loans in 2007 were really at the, the height of the market, so uh, that's going to be interesting to see. I think we're already seeing a lot of properties being advertised uh, this month. Uh, already, it seems to already be started. Well, we have to take a short break. We'll get more on the U.S. banking industry and bank and servicer strategies. If you appreciate the show, reach out and thank our sponsors. I'm Michael Bull, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty. When your business requires proven performance, visit bullrealty.com. And Arnold Golden Gregory, a law firm that makes a difference. Visit agg.com. And by France Media, providing exposure to the world of commercial real estate. Visit francemediainc.com. And by Resnick Group, a top 20 national accounting firm focused on real estate. Visit resnickgroup.com. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. If you'd like more great commercial real estate information, subscribe to the show blog at commercialrealestateshow.com. And you can follow the show on Twitter. The accounts are CRE Show and Bull Realty. Well, today we're covering bank and servicer strategies. My guest is Christopher Marinak, Managing Principal and Director of Research with FIG Partners. Well, Chris, you guys are monitoring banks and, and banks and talking to them every day. Are they getting better at working through their land and, and commercial foreclosed properties? Michael, I think they are. It, it just takes time. Mm-hmm. This is not a uh, this is a, not a sprint, but rather a marathon. We're seeing more banks selling assets. We're seeing more banks being proactive, using third parties uh, as agents to move properties. We have a couple of company examples in November and December last year who sold blocks of, of assets: 100 million here, 150 million there. Very helpful for those companies to reduce their classified ratios, and I think put them in much better. Uh, graces with their regulators. That needs to be repeated about a thousand times during the course of 2012 and 13. And I think with the passage of time, banks are getting better with it. Now, you know, part of the FDIC and, and Federal Reserve regulations calls for banks to write down Oreo values each quarter. That's one of the reasons why those Oreos expenses I mentioned are going to stay high. Um, that is happening. Most banks are pretty good. And we can measure the residual losses that banks take when they sell Oreo. And what we're finding is that you know, they might be off by by five to eight, five to ten percent, but they're not off by fifty. If you mm-hmm. go back three or four years, they were off by fifty percent all day, every day. So the valuation impairments that are occurring on Oreo is getting better. What's not happening is that banks are not writing down enough loans, or when they have a problem asset, they're not taking the full write off. They're kind of gingerly working it down, and we still have this issue of kicking the can that is going on in the industry. And a lot of listeners are are familiar with that issue, and I, I do think it exists on certain property types, but. On Oreo specifically, banks are getting better at valuing it, getting better at, at taking their medicine. So that piece of the puzzle is at least beginning to uh, be be better and uh, starting to at least show that there is light at the end of the tunnel. Well, let's talk about that a little bit, Chris. How do banking regulations and the FDIC affects banks' handling of OREO? Do they... They have to sell within five years, and how often do they have to have them appraised? The appraisals need to be each year. Um, the banks who specifically have lost share assets that are coming from FDIC failures um, do have some more rigorous uh, documentation that they have to make, and, and those are getting are also getting reappraised each each year. The reality is that, um, that most banks, uh, if they have a piece of Oreo, they are writing it down immediately that quarter, and they're reassessing it more than one year or more, or more than once a year. 
Um, my sense is that what's happening is that banks are selling properties. They are not sitting still with them when they have them. You just have more coming that's kind of in the inflow and outflow. And some companies have seen the inflows of new assets slow. It just depends on the company, which, which you look for. Um, that data is not uniformly available in terms of the inflow and outflow. We get that from some of the public companies that give greater, greater disclosure. But when you look at the call reports, Oreo, as I mentioned before, is still relatively high and is expected to stay stay that way. But I do think the valuation of it is getting stronger. It's just that there's a whole other loan portfolio outside of the foreclosures that still has to be properly valued. And that's just taking time for banks to get that right. And banks can uh, own REO, ORIO up to five years, right? They're, I believe that's true. Okay. And, and, and typically we see banks selling it long before that. Yeah, well, they should. I mean, the holding costs can uh, kill them. That's exactly uh, right. Not to mention the risk of, of owning the property and dealing with the tenants. Well, Chris, for banks to be more profitable and to get the economy rolling, banks really need to lend more. We saw a lot more loans closed in 2011 in our shop than we've seen in years. Are banks really starting to lend more? Banks are starting to lend more, and what's happened, Michael, is that uh, a light bulb went off on most banks' minds in the middle of last year, which basically said, holy cow, interest rates are low. They're going to stay low for the next three or four years. The Fed keeps telling us that. We have an issue of too much cash coming in from deposits, too much cash coming off of our securities portfolios, and too much cash coming from bank loan paydowns, which are just naturally being paid down every day, just like our mortgages would, would, would amortize lower. Those inflows of cash have to be redeployed. Otherwise, banks are going to have incredible margin pressure and incredible revenue drops. And so to offset those revenue drops, they have to put more money to work. Now, we still have the issue of what types of loans banks are making, and it just varies. We see banks being more aggressive on owner-occupied real estate, on certain property types, but they're not uniformly going after um, the same type of loans as they did in the past. So a perfect example is if you want to get money on a multifamily loan, you're seeing a J.P. Morgan and other big banks being incredibly assertive and incredibly proactive right now. And that's a good thing if you're in multifamily. If you're looking to construct a hotel, it's a lot difficult. Even though hotel properties are acting stronger and we've seen RevPAR actually behave very well from a fundamental standpoint in 2011. So the, the availability on the property type really does vary and banks are being very picky about the types of things they do. We also see commercial loans <clears throat> outside of real estate on the C&I front being very proactive and almost a bidding war in certain situations for CNI. A lot of borrowers we know are lending below LIBOR plus 200 on a CNI loan, which is incredible given how low the, the LIBOR rate is today. Yeah. Well, it sure seems like a good time for banks to be doing loans on commercial properties when their value at this low, at this low in number right now. I mean, these should be some of the safest loans they've done in years. That is correct. Well, Chris Marinak, thanks for joining us today. We sure appreciate your time. Thank you, Michael. Enjoyed it. If you'd like more information from Fig Partners, their website and contact information is available for you at commercialrealestateshow.com. Well, after a short break, we'll share more bank and servicer strategies. I'm Michael Bull, and you're listening to the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty. When your business requires proven performance, visit bullrealty.com. And Arnold Golden Gregory, a law firm that makes a difference. Visit agg.com. And by France Media, providing exposure to the world of commercial real estate. Visit francemediainc.com. And by Resnick Group, a top 20 national accounting firm focused on real estate. Visit resnickgroup.com. Thank you. 
Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is America's Commercial Real Estate Show, where dancing in the studio is allowed. <laughs> okay. Well, we have some great shows coming up, including a show on the unique timing and best practices for rezoning properties in the U.S. It's a great time for that, and we'll share some strategies for you there. We have a very informative show coming up on lease issues, so if you run a company, you deal with leases, you want to check out that show. If you'd like a once-a-week email announcing the show topic, you're invited to sign up at commercialrealestateshow.com. Well, today we're covering bank and servicer strategies. Please welcome Robert Reynolds with Reynolds, Reynolds & Little, a law firm engaged primarily in the representation of financial institutions and lenders with a focus on banking law, participation loan resolution, bankruptcy, loan workouts, and real estate. Robert, thanks for joining us today. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Also, please welcome Rob Whitmire. Rob is a partner with Bull Realty, where he leads the Special Assets Group. Bull Realty works with over 100 lenders and servicers, providing full-service brokerage services, including the best-for-sale marketing in the country. Rob, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Michael. Well, gentlemen, we've heard from Tom at Trap and Chris at Fig, who's still here with us, about the amount of problem loans and expected foreclosures. You guys are on the front lines helping banks and servicers every day. I appreciate you both sharing some tips and, and best practices for lenders today. Uh, many of these loans are participation loans, you know, with a few lenders or, or sometimes up to 50 or 60 lenders involved in a participating loan. Uh, Robert, what are some of the best practices for banks involved in participation loans to actually make decisions and get things done to uh, maximize recoveries? Uh, my, my daughter asked me what I did in my practice, and I said, I heard cats. <laughs> yeah, that's what <laughs> When you have a loan with uh, 50 participant banks, uh, it, it can make decision-making process pretty difficult. I would say that the most important thing initially is to determine who the lead is, who has control. Uh, what the terms of the participation agreement are, because it, it's important to distinguish between uh, syndicated credits, where you have generally large money center banks that you may have four or five banks that are in a large credit. They all have direct dealings with the borrower. They may have separate notes, and they may have separate strategies. In a participation loan, you have one lead bank, and the borrower may actually have no idea who the participants in the loan actually are. and and so there is no direct communication. Everything feeds through the lead bank. And, and there are different types of lead banks. Uh, you may just have a community bank that's a lead. Quite often, though, there were loans created by bankers' banks where you had a sophisticated servicer who would put together the credit package, make the offering to the various community banks who would take it to their board of directors and approve it. So you may have a, a $75 million real estate development loan, uh, had them in Arizona and Las Vegas and all around. And you'll have 50 banks that have varying sizes of that loan. What it's important, I think, for the borrower to realize is it may seem like a small amount to community bank to have a million dollars, but that may be that bank's maximum lending limit. Mm -hmm. It is a very large loan for that bank. Mm -hmm. The person who is on the conference call is going to be the president of that bank or the chief credit officer, um, because this isn't the only one they have. You know, the FDIC uh, encouraged diversification, and as a result, a small bank in Alabama, Tennessee, or, or Michigan uh, ends up with a m maximum legal lending limit loan on a condo project in Florida right. or Phoenix, which is out of their territory. Yeah. So, you know, that I think the important thing is to get control you hope that the lead is not the FDIC or is a law share bank because they have to operate differently. Mm -hmm. What 
we have recommended is for the participant lenders to form a steering committee of those who are actively involved, hopefully somewhere is near the borrower. Um, I have one in Missouri, and I have one of the participant banks that actually had the payroll account for the hotel across the street. You've got to have somebody who knows who the people are. Mm-hmm. But you have that steering committee of volunteers who will range in size of participant, uh, and you let that steering committee guide the process because the bankers are comfortable when other bankers like themselves are making the recommendations. Mm-hmm. They may not be on this steering committee, but they may be on a different one. And when you develop that consensus, then you can make decisions. But it takes time. Yeah. So that's the secret of herding the cats, huh? It, it is indeed. <laughs> okay. Well, it's amazing what uh, you've done around the country to get these banks together to make decisions. And, and Rob, you and Robert both see what banks do right and, and what they do wrong every day. What do you see that lenders are doing that works well for them? And, and what are some mistakes lenders might want to avoid, Rob? Sure. I, I think the lenders these days that are doing things well bring their team together early on in the process. So pre-foreclosure, maybe as soon as they start to see a loan that begins to be troubled, they'll bring their advisors in, they'll bring their brokers in, their leasing team, their management team, and really have them start early on providing expectations for potential disposition value, providing strategy uh, as far as time frames, so that the lenders really get a, a good feel for the time frame it's going to take to dispose of the asset hopefully at the dollar amount that the bank is, is hopeful to get. So, so that communication is key between the workout guys and REO. Yes, and I think really leading into what some banks aren't doing well is they have two different sides of their bank. They have a, the workout guys that are working with a borrower pre-foreclosure. They're talking a lot more about deficiencies. They're trying to, to work the loan out. And then when the decision is made by that side of the bank to foreclose, They literally just box up the file, send it to the other side of the bank, and that new group and the OREO side of things kind of starts over new. And sometimes they're surprised that they got the file in the first place. (laughs) Look what I have. Yeah, and uh, it's a tough transition because those guys needed to know two months ago, really, so that they could plan accordingly. That makes sense. We have to take a short break. More bank and servicer strategies after a quick break. If you appreciate the show, shoot us an email or a tweet. I'm Michael Bull, and this is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty. When your business requires proven performance, visit bullrealty.com. And Arnold Golden Gregory, a law firm that makes a difference. Visit agg.com. And by France Media, providing exposure to the world of commercial real estate. Visit francemediainc.com. And by Resnick Group, a top 20 national accounting firm focused on real estate. Visit resnickgroup.com. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is America's Commercial Real Estate Show. Well, I have something special for you. When do you feel the best about yourself? Well, when you're helping someone in need, right? Well, join me to check out Andy's Army. A commercial agent's daughter experienced serious brain injuries. His daughter, their family, and others in the same position could use our help. The website is Andy's, A-N-D-E-E-S, 
than Army. Or give me a call at 888-612-SHOW to see how you can help. Even a small contribution helps. Well, today we're covering bank and servicer strategies. My guests are Robert Reynolds with Reynolds, Reynolds & Little, Rob Whitmire with Special Asset Services with Bull Realty, and Chris Marinak with Fig Partners. And uh, Robert, I'd like to get into some more strategies that are working well in the Oreo marketing world for lenders right now. What are they doing right? What's helping them get maximum value for these properties? Michael, I, I think two things. One, before I talk about the structure of the real estate, let me just mention most of these loans are going to involve guarantors. And I think one of the things that the banks have to do is look beyond simply their security documents. Is there anything else that the guarantors can deliver that will assist me in achieving the greatest value for this real estate? Mm-hmm. Uh, we, in, we get these loans on the back end. The documents have already been signed. It's three years later. They were covenant light when they were made, and now they need to be covenant strong, but you're not in a position to get that. Mm-hmm. You may not have gotten declarant rights. You may have homeowners association. You may have architectural control board issues. Things like that that a guarantor can still deliver in addition to cash. And my suggestion is deal with the guarantors right off the bat, settle with them, get control of the property, get what they can give you that you don't already have that you need, and then focus on the property. The second thing is we are using a strategy involving the formation of limited liability companies. We call them special purpose entities as the vehicle to take title to the real estate. They can either be bank-owned or they can be not bank-owned. We don't like our banks to own anything uh, because of liability. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you have someone injured uh, in an apartment complex, a child drowns in a pool, if a jury determines that that apartment complex is owned by a bank, Mm -hmm. forget limits of insurance. Uh, They may own the bank. So we, as a, from a liability standpoint, we recommend the title be taken in special purpose entities. Uh, they can grant a lien back to the lender, and that, that's been a very effective method that we've used to market properties. Plus, it's held in the name of an entity rather than a bank, so it isn't tainted on the market as bank-owned. So that's great. Those are some things we suggest. That makes sense. And to get the information from the borrower that you can to help you with the value of that property is a very, very good advice. Well, Rob, but what about short sales? You know, as lenders figured out a long time ago in residential that listing a home with the best brokers and short selling was the, was the road to higher recoveries. But with commercial properties, it seems to be kind of hit or miss. What are your recommendations for lenders to maximize recoveries with short sales on commercial properties? In the case where you have a friendly borrower, so somebody that's kind of working with you, uh, it, there's a great opportunity to keep the banks out of the chain of title. Uh, and this is done by short sales. Generally, the borrower, if they are friendly, will enter into a forbearance agreement. Uh, and within that document, uh, you're able to address many things. But the tip, I would say, is to make sure that the bank has the ability to review offers, all the offers that come in. Uh, and the bank has some ability to recommend brokers, uh, brokers that are going to provide maximum exposure and really get the property out there. Um, what we don't want to see is a borrower that's trying to do a short sale but not providing offers so the bank really doesn't know what's going on and maybe hiring a buddy that really isn't motivated to market the property because the borrower still hopes to, to hang on to it. 
Right, and if you've uh, reduced your lender liability, if the borrower signed off there, then I think the lender has more uh, more power to ask that uh, that borrower to, hey, I want to see copies of offers. I want to see the marketing. I want to know what's going on. Well, Robert, uh, Rob, Chris, thanks for joining us today. We sure appreciate your time and insight. If you'd like more information on bank and servicer strategies, the contact information for everyone on the show is available at commercialrealestateshow.com. Well, thanks for spending some time with us. I'm Michael Bull. Until next week, be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh, and join us for the Commercial Real Estate Show. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty. When your business requires proven performance, visit bullrealty.com. And Arnold Golden Gregory, a law firm that makes a difference. Visit agg.com. And by France Media, providing exposure to the world of commercial real estate. Visit francemediainc.com. And by Resnick Group, a top 20 national accounting firm focused on real estate. Visit resnickgroup.com.